God, we uh, thank you so much for sending your one and only son to come to planet Earth and uh, to move in our lives and to love us. And we ask now, God, that that same love that came that first Christmas would be present in this place and lives would be changed. We want to hear from you, God, beyond all the chaos of consumerism that seems to just control the Christmas season. And that we just have a moment right now, beyond all the other things that will be planned today and the days leading up and presents to buy and all of that, to allow you to speak to us. And so we pray that you would move in this place and that you would persuade people in a way that I never could so that your name would be made great. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to uh, talk to you about the miracle of the incarnation. Now, I didn't say carnation like the flower. How many like carnations? Anyone? Okay, a couple hands. Okay. I did not say carnation like the instant breakfast. Anyone ever had that before? The instant carnation breakfast? Okay. You drink that? Okay. And I didn't say the carnations like this indie rock band uh, that I found. Have any of you ever heard of this group before? Me neither, but... uh, I like the album cover, kind of took you back to the 60s a little bit there, you know, especially the guy on the top uh, right there with the beard. It almost looks like Jesus a little bit, you know. Um, And uh, I didn't say what is my favorite Japanese television show, The Carnation. I speak fluent Japanese, and so I love this show. Not really, but uh, it is. But folks... Sometimes we look at words and we pass over them, and I'm not talking about carnation today, but I want to talk about the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation. And simply put, this is what it means. It is that God clothed himself in human flesh, and he came to live among us. That that is the miracle of what Christmas is all about. That God clothed himself in human flesh and he chose to live among us. And he did it in the form of a small, little, tiny baby. Uh, How many of you have seen a newborn baby recently? Anyone uh, seen a little cuddly newborn baby? Okay few of you. Some of you are new moms that I know of, and you're like, yeah, I see them all the time. 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., right? Well, on Wednesday, uh, our family uh, gave a gift to a couple of friends of ours by watching their little baby. Uh, We have a picture up of him here. Uh, This is little Ollie. And uh, our youngest daughter, Shiloh, just fell in love with this little guy. And you can uh, see her there. Uh, just kind of holding, patting his head, and uh, caring for him. And I was thinking that you would have to have a heart of stone not to be melted 
by the small little limbs and the small little fingers and toes of a brand new born baby. When my kids were born, uh, one of the coolest things that I thought was looking at their little fingernails and toenails. Like, how in the world does that come about? And I remember just being so filled with joy uh, looking at them. And when I saw them, uh, just within minutes, I just fell in love with them. And it's like my heart grew bigger because I saw these little tiny bodies and I just kind of burst into joy. I was astonished. I just gasped at the miracle of these little babies. Now, in high school biology, we're going to go back there today, okay, so for some of you that might be hard to do, but we're going back to uh, high school biology, and you learn that before babies start, they actually become an embryo. How many of you remember from biology class that they're an embryo first? Anyone? Okay. Some of you are raising your hands and you're liars because you slept through biology, didn't you? Huh? You were not a biology person at all, but I didn't sleep through biology, and this is what I found. That an embryo is half the size of a grain of sand. Think about that. Amazing. Half the size of a grain of sand. So every single person here, you started out as an embryo. My two kids started out as embryos. But nine months later, these miniature little people came and they began to breathe and to move and to cry and to bring so much joy into different people's lives. And I loved all of that. Now, the thing about the incarnation of Jesus Christ that we rarely think about is this, is that Jesus was something really, really big like gigantic, before he became an embryo. Now, for some of you, you'll have to let that kind of sink in. He was something really, really, really big before he became an embryo. Before he became an embryo, he was big. Before you were an embryo, folks, guess what you were? Nothing. You were absolutely nothing. You might have been a gleam in your mom and dad's eyes, you know, but you were absolutely nothing. But before Christ was an embryo, he was the second person of the Trinity. He was the Son of God hanging out in heaven. He had existed before there was even anything created. And then he became an embryo. Now, the text that explains this to us is in Philippians chapter 2, and it's a text that's in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, and I would uh, like us to look at that. And the guy who wrote this was a guy by the name of Paul. And something that's very interesting about Paul is that he hated Christians. In fact, he actually killed some Christians. I have a feeling that you might think of some Christians you would like to kill during Christmas season, right? I mean, you're just, you're tired of it. Well, this guy, Paul, wrote these powerful words to define the incarnation. This is what he said. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider uh, equality with God something to be grasped. 
but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this whole text begins at the very beginning. It says that Jesus was in the very nature of God. He was equal with God. Did you catch that little point? At the very beginning, he says he's equal with God. You know, most people, when I'm first talking to them about Jesus, they kind of think that Jesus is like the assistant coach to God. That he is kind of the vice president to God. Like he's the backup quarterback to God. But this text tells us, no, 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 that's not the case. The scripture never teaches that. Although throughout the Bible, Jesus is carefully considered a full-fledged member of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God in every way. Since the very beginning, folks, Jesus was always present. He didn't just jump on the scene when he became an embryo. In Genesis 1.26, let's look at this. It says, let us make man in our own image. Now, do you find that peculiar? I find it very peculiar. That second word, what's the word? Why does it say us? Because at the very beginning, it wasn't just God the Father, but it was God the Father, God the Son, Jesus being present, and God the Holy Spirit creating everything. Jesus was fully involved, folks, and present at the beginning of creation. In fact, the scripture I love the most that kind of refers to how powerful the position and authority of who Jesus is. Because sometimes I think what we like to do is take little baby Jesus like, uh, you know, uh, Talladega Nights, that scene where, uh, you know, uh, Will uh, Farrell. It uh, talks about the baby little Jesus, and we want to put the little baby Jesus in our pocket. But you don't put Jesus in the pocket. Jesus was before everything. And his power is described in this way in the next passage. Jesus was before all things, and in him all things hold together. Folks, what I'm driving this morning is that not only is Jesus God but also that he was in heaven with all of the entitlements, all of the privileges, all the prerogatives, angels singing to him constantly. All of that's available to him, which means this, folks, that if you start in heaven as the second person of the Trinity and you wind up all the way down here on planet Earth as a small little embryo the size that is half the size of a grain of sand, and you're planted into the womb of a 14-year-old pimple-faced teenager, guess what? That's a huge demotion. Like, that might be the greatest demotion ever in the history of the world. In fact, that's the big idea I want you to get this morning, and it's this. No one in the history of the world took a bigger demotion than Jesus Christ. No one. No one took a bigger demotion in the history of the world 
than Jesus Christ. Now, question. How do you respond when you're demoted? How do you experience a little demotion? If you've ever been on an airplane before, you know that on most commercial uh, airplanes, there are two sections. There is the first class, and then there is economy class. And the thing that divides the first class passengers from the economy class passengers is what? What? A curtain. It's just a curtain. Now, it's a special curtain, though. It's not like this thing here, you know. It's not like a back. It's a special curtain. Well, over fall break, my family uh, went to Florida, and so we're on the plane, and uh, we get seated in the first row of economy class. And we're sitting there, and I felt so blessed because I was that close to the first class passengers. And I can remember sitting there thinking to myself, man, first class, like they've got it really good. Like they've got these huge chairs that are leather, and there's only two of them. You don't have the dreaded middle seat that someone has to sit in and both people are elbowing you the whole time. The people in first class can lean back their seat. The people in first class get a complimentary drink when you kind of sit down. And they give you the snack, the very first. And while everyone has to walk by first class, the first class people are just lounging out, taking it easy, like, man, this is awesome. And all of us have to walk back to the back. I've never bought a first-class ticket in my life. My wife says I'm way too cheap for that, so I don't. But on that day when I was sitting in the very front row of the economy class, I began to think. I measured it in my mind. I thought, it's only three feet from first class to me. That's it. It's just three feet. From first class to where I was sitting. And then all of a sudden, I started thinking in my mind, what would happen if someone came up to the people in first class and they said, you know what, we need you to move. And you've got to move at least three feet to the economy class. Well, this week I did some research on how people have responded when they've had to do that. I looked at some Hollywood stars who have actually lost a gasket, been kicked off of planes before because they were asked to move three feet. I was reading this week about a religious leader who uh, was asked to move three feet and went off and was kicked off a plane. I looked at some multi-millionaire executives who were asked to simply move three feet and they got so irate that they told the company they would never fly them again. Some people, folks, they just hate three feet demotions. Now, how about you? Do you take demotions lightly? 
I mean, if you get demoted in your job, if we get demoted in our jobs, how do we respond? We get mad. We get ticked off. We get jealous at the people that got promoted and we didn't. And we start to blame everybody. And some of us have even walked out of jobs before because of a small demotion. If you get involved in an organization and you're giving your time and your energy to it, and all of a sudden you get a little demotion, we leave it sometimes. You call ahead, you get reservations at a restaurant, you get to the restaurant, you have a particular time and a table that they're going to seat you, but all of a sudden they tell you, no, you're going to have to wait at least 30 more minutes. And you're like, but I gave a reservation. And they tell you, well, that we, we're sorry, you can't get that table right now. And I've seen it before in restaurants, I bet you have too. People get up and they walk out of the restaurant. Or you get a hotel reservation. You show up and they say, hey, we're sorry, we're really booked and we couldn't give you the king size bed. We only have a queen size uh, this time. And I've seen people before, they'll take the contract, they'll slide it across the table and they'll say, we're going to another place. All because of a demotion. Folks, no one likes demotion. No one I know ever takes demotions lying down. And yet, on Incarnation Day, the greatest demotion in the history of the world took place. Jesus, the text says, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Really? Are you kidding me? You have been hanging out in heaven your entire being. You were there before everything ever existed. You're hanging out there. You have all the privileges, all the entitlements. You have thousands of angels who sing your name every single morning that you wake up. Tens of thousands of angels, 24-7. They're always there. They're always taking care of every need that you have. You have all the splendor, all the grandeur. Would you voluntarily open up your grip and let it go? Would you do that? I don't think so. Each summer, uh, growing up as a kid, my dad would take uh, either my brother, my sister, or myself on a trip out of state. He always had a church conference that he went to Uh, every summer, and he was always excited to choose one of the kids to go. Well, this usually happened around age 12. My brother at age 12 got to go to Seattle. He got on an airplane. He flew to Seattle. When I turned age 12, I got to go in an unair-conditioned T-1000 Chevy car To Wichita, Kansas. I still haven't quite gotten over it yet, okay? Well, I'm 12 years old, and all I've heard for five years is how amazing Seattle was and how Dad did everything for my brother, and uh, I was just waiting for it. And so I was pumped when my dad said, Hey, we're going to drive in this vehicle, and we're going to go all the way to Wichita, Kansas. So on the way, 
when you're 12 years old and you're sweating and you're losing fluids constantly, you begin to start asking questions. So I said, well, Dad, does, uh, does this place have a swimming pool? Uh, Dad, does this place have HBO? Uh, Dad, does this place, you know, have a breakfast bar? And I'll never forget, my dad just responded. He kind of looked and he's like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I never ask. Now, I'm only 12 years old, but I know when a parent says something like that, it may not be a good thing. And so I started to wonder, what kind of place are we going to stay in? And so I said, well, well, Dad, what's just the name of the hotel that we're staying at? And then he said this. He said, it's called the plantation. And I thought, man, I've read about plantations. We even had to watch Gone with the Wind for like 10 hours or something, you know. And I remember in Gone with the Wind, they had a plantation. It looked like this. And it was called Terra. Like, that's where we're staying? And so the whole time I'm excited. And we arrive into Wichita. And my dad drives us down into the downtown area, the armpit of Wichita. There are broken windows. There is plight everywhere. And he pulls up to this place that has a sign, and it says the plantation, but it is a rundown motel. I remember asking my dad, Dad, who are those ladies? Son, don't look. <laughs> there are prostitutes like all over the place. This is when, uh, you know, they had like pipes that they were out smoking, you know. And uh, there were ladies hanging out the window. And I'm like, Dad, we're not going to stay here, are we? He's like, no. And he just kept on going. So he goes to the convention center where everything was going to be, where they had the housing. And he had written down the wrong name of the hotel. And it wasn't the plantation that we were going to. It was called the Diamond Plantation. And this was by the airport. So we drive out to the airport, and when we pull up, it was like a plantation. It was amazing. They had this huge building for the lobby and all of these uh, different little huts that you would stay in individually. It was just amazing. And we walked inside, and it had everything that you could want. And I remember being uh, able to ask the person in charge, I was like, well, do you guys have like a pool? And they go, we not only have an outdoor pool, we have an indoor pool. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're like, so what? No big deal. 1983, folks, if you had an indoor pool in your little uh, establishment, it was a big deal. So I'm like, this is awesome. And we got to our room and it was beautiful and gorgeous. We each had our own bed and they were huge beds. It was like you know, multiple rooms. It was wonderful. They had this big TV, not like the rinky-dink TV we had back in Marion, Indiana, where we only got channels 6, 8, and 13, but this had HBO and all the movies. And I remember that as we went to bed at night, they would make these uh, little towels out of Animals and it would be there and you'd be like, man, how did they do that? You know? And we would go into the uh, lobby and when you'd walk in there, they had vases, not vases, folks, vases. And there were these flower arrangements, you know, everywhere. 
And I remember in the morning, I, I didn't want to go to anything about God and the church. I was in heaven, you know. My dad would like wake up, come on, we got to go. No, dad, I'll just pray here. You know, I'll just pray right here. Well, the con- time finally came. The week was over. And we had to go back. And I think I even threatened my dad. I'm like, I'm going to chain myself to the bedpost. You know, you can't take me away from this place. I mean, for seven days. And the housekeepers would come in. They would turn down your bed. I didn't even know what that was. And they had like little candies and it smelled so good. I'm like, we're leaving this for that dingy, dinky, unconditioned or unair conditioned uh, parsonage back in Marion, Indiana. And this is the thing, folks. Neither one, of the, neither one of us wanted to leave, and we had only been there one week. Now, here's the point. We have no idea. Our minds cannot comprehend what Jesus left behind when He left heaven to come to earth. All He had known from eternity past was all of the splendor of heaven. All he had ever experienced was being worshipped and adored and cared for by hundreds and thousands and millions of angels 24-7. I mean, the best description that I think we can find of what heaven looked like, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of human beings what heaven is like. And the moment he released the grip and he left heaven, he became this small little embryo in a dark womb of a teenage girl from a cow town in the Middle East. Folks, there's never been There's never been in the history of the world a greater demotion than what Jesus took on. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus did not just say, oh, I'm willing to become an embryo. He took a greater demotion than that, way more. He took the humiliation of being born in an animal stable. Do you know what animals leave after they eat? It's all around the second person of the Trinity. Now, we romanticize the Christmas story and we think of the baby Jesus. But Jesus was born in a filthy, unsanitary condition barn with livestock all around him. He was wrapped up in these cut-up rags. The peasant couple that the Son of God was turned to, couldn't even afford a cloth. So they had these cut-up rags to try to keep him warm. And then they laid him in a feeding trough so that this teenage girl could get a minute or two of rest. What a demotion. But the humiliation doesn't stop there. We're told that then, after that took place, that there was... This egomaniac king by the name of Herod who decided, hey, you know what? I've heard about this baby that's going to take my job, so we're going to kill every child two years and younger. 
So before Jesus could talk much or walk, he and his parents were fleeing for their lives to a foreign country. They were illegal aliens. Folks, what Jesus was at the very beginning of his life was an illegal alien running for his life, and he's only two years old. So now the second person of the Trinity, the God himself, is on the run to a foreign land. I just want to ask you this morning, can you get any more demoted than that? Yep, you can. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 says this, that as Jesus grew up, he took on the very nature of a servant. You remember the story in the Bible? It's his last supper. And dinner comes... But someone's dropped the ball and they forgot to get the feet washer boy to come to wash all of their feet. And the guys that Jesus around, they were way too proud to get on their own knees and wash one another's feet. There were no way they were going to stoop that low. And so Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, gets down on his knees and he washes the feet of all of them, even the ones that would betray him, and took a basin and washed the feet with water, dried them with a towel. He took on the form of a servant. Remember the times when he would teach his heart out. He came from heaven, folks. Like, do you get that? Like, he came from heaven. He's got a heavenly message that he's given to people on earth. And there's these people with less than a third grade education jeering and mocking him and making fun of him. Can it get any worse than that? Can there be a greater demotion than that? Yep, you can You can be betrayed by every single person that you've poured your life into the last three years. You can be deserted by all of your followers in your greatest need. You can be falsely accused of a crime that you didn't commit. You can be whipped and flogged. Flogging was actually being skinned alive where they would put uh, metal and rocks that would be at the end of a whip so that when they whipped the person, it actually took the skin off. And then after that, then they spit on him. They made fun of him. They made a crown. They put it on his head. They treated him like a common thug. But you can't be more demoted than that, can you? Yep, you can. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says this. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What that means, folks, is that the second person of the Trinity, who is only known, think about this, who is only known sinlessness since eternity past, now has the weight of the world's sin placed upon his shoulders when he's on the cross. That's all your sin. That's all my my sin. And folks, I have a huge bucket of sin in my life that Jesus took on. And it's not just sin from the past. It's sin in the present. It's sin in the future. All your sin, all my sin, all the sins of the world were placed upon his shoulders. And now he's a guilty, filthy 
shameful sinner to the extent that no one has ever shouldered that much sin. He's stripped of his clothes, he's humiliated, and he's left to die. Yep, he dies. The author of life, the one who breathed life into all things, who breathed life into Adam and Eve, draws his final breath and he says, it's finished. And he dies. He took on the ultimate evil, death itself. Folks, that was the final and the ultimate demotion. The giver of life who only knew heaven gives up his life for the likes of people like you and you and you and you and you and me. And he spills his last drops of blood. His last drop of blood for what? So that all of us could be forgiven. And the sins of the world would be taken care of. Now some of you are sitting there right now and you're like, dude, we got a Christmas party this afternoon. Like the Colts are playing the Cowboys. Don't you think you're just being a little bit too heavy this morning? And don't you think you could just lighten up a little bit? Well, the last few weeks, what we've been talking about is how weird Christmas can be. That Christmas isn't normal. And that some of you are going to experience abnormal Christmases or Christmas this year. That some of you will have a weird Christmas. There'll be someone who will not sit at the dinner table that was there last Christmas. There'll be some of you who are struggling with some really difficult relationship stuff with a spouse, with kids, with friends, with family. And it's all going down in this tough time during Christmas. And I guess what I just simply wanted you to know, folks, was that the original Christmas was weird. Because no one in the history of the world ever took a demotion that way for somebody like you, for someone like me. And not only did he come in the form of an embryo, but then he was demoted to refugee day. Then he was demoted to a, a whole nother series of that. And then it finally led to death day. So I guess on Christmas Sunday, 2014, I just wanted to rock your minds a little bit that when you drive by a nativity scene or you look at the nativity scene in someone's house that the little quiet little baby that's in the manger, folks, the miracle that's there didn't just come from an embryo. He actually came from heaven 
all the way to planet Earth so that you would not have to carry any sin in your life ever again because you could dump it on the shoulders of the one who could take it all. And he didn't leave heaven like kicking his feet. I don't want to go. He left joyfully. He left joyfully for you because that's how much love He has just for you. That if you were the only person on planet Earth when the day came for Incarnation Day, He would have left heaven just for you. And I was thinking about it this week. Why would somebody do that? Like, why would someone take a demotion like that? And it all came down to one word, folks. Love. Love. Scripture says this. God is love. He loves you. And because of His love for you, He didn't even hold back His greatest treasure. Why? Because He loves you. Folks, you were created as a special object of God's love. The whole reason you're sitting there today, the whole reason you were created was so that you could have a relationship with the God of heaven who loves you. Christmas was demotion day for Jesus. But it was promotion day for you and me and all human beings ever. Because from that event, God reminded us that He loved us, that He loved us so much that He gave us His only Son. And this is what I was thinking about today. There are a lot of people that say they love you. Any of you that uh, have ever dated before, someone says, oh yeah, yeah, I love you, I love you, I love you. And pretty soon, you know what, they really don't love you. But there's one who will love you forever and ever and ever. And this is how he shows it. Because every day he wakes up and he says, not all, when you wake up, he not only says, I love you. He says, I'm for you. Romans 8.31 says this. Some of you should write this down, circle it. If God is for us, who can be against us? I bet you know a lot of people that could be against you, can't you? you got names of faces right now. You're like, I know some people that are against me. There is one who is never against you. He's always for you. In fact, you could uh, begin every single phrase that comes out of your mouth by saying this. God is for me. God is for me this Christmas. God is for me when I go through this problem. God is for me when I'm struggling with this relationship in my life. God is with me when I struggle with this situation. I mean, everything that you can think of, God is for me. Everything in your life, no matter what, God is for you. How do we know this? He proved it. He left heaven, folks. And he came to earth. Now, some of you are sitting there, though, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, 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 but I've messed up way too much, dude. Like, what you don't understand 
is I don't even know this Jesus that you're talking about. I just came because someone told me I had to come and I'm sitting here and I'm not sure. Why would anyone do that for me anyway? And he did it because of his amazing love for you. He created you to love you. Some of you might be sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, but like me, dude, I've drifted away from him. Like I knew him one time, we were connecting, and all of a sudden I did some things in my life, I changed some things, I went off course, I've drifted away from him since. You know what Jesus is like? He's saying, so what? Everybody drifts. I drift. You drift. Everybody drifts. He says, no problem. Why don't you just come back? Have you ever noticed when things drift away, a lot of times they drift back? And why is that? Because you have to touch whatever the object is, and you have to move it closer to you. And things drift back. And Jesus says, drift back. God is love. The biggest emotion, folks, that ever happened in all of earth was when he left heaven to come to earth. And why? Because he just wanted you to know. Jesus wanted you to know. Christmas 2014. I love you and I'm for you. 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 That's Christmas. And so uh, we're going to sing a song here in a second that just talks about Christ's amazing love for you. That he loves you and that he's for you. And I was thinking today that as Derek kind of closes us with this, that if you've never committed your life to Christ before, That you've never said, you know what, I want him to be Lord of my life. I've had some stuff in my past, but today's the day I want to make it known. I don't know why you wouldn't do it. There isn't a greater gift that you'll ever receive in your life than the fact that someone left heaven just for you. And you can do that today, right now. I'm going to be standing... uh, at a table that uh, is uh, over here. Is it behind the curtain? What? Oh, okay. That will be right over there. And um, I'll pray with you. And uh, today can be your day. And you might be like, you know what? I don't want to do that because people are going to be looking at me. They're going to be watching me. Well, guess what? We're going to turn the lights off. And what's going to happen is everyone's going to be looking at the two screens and they're going to be singing songs to God. And they're going to be so much like, man, Jesus loves me. He's for me. But some people won't take the walk to walk 10 steps or 20 steps or 50 steps. You know how many steps Jesus took? An infinite number of steps. He left heaven, folks, to come to earth. And so I thought you might just want a moment where you could.
pray and say, today's the day, God. Some of you, when you walked in here, you didn't have any prompting whatsoever. But now you're like, man, I'm being prompted by God. I need to do this today. I wouldn't leave here, honestly. I wouldn't. I wouldn't leave from this place if I didn't know I was right with God. I wouldn't. And you can say, God, thank you for taking a demotion for me. Thank you, Jesus, for being demoted so that I could be promoted. And that when you do that, you can say, and I want forgiveness of my sins, God. Everything that I've screwed up in in my life, God, today. And it's wiped away. And every day after this, because of that relationship, you can do that. And so I was just thinking, some of you might just need a moment where you can go to the author of life and say, I want you. I want you. So if you would, stand with me. And uh, we'll uh, close in prayer, and then I'll be right there to uh, pray with anyone who would like to make that commitment today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for loving us. I can't even imagine what that demotion was like to leave heaven to come to earth. But thank you so much, Jesus, for coming so that we don't have to walk this life alone. That we can be loved and forgiven and set free today. Thank you for reminding us, God, that you love us and that you're for us. And I pray that no one would leave this place today with not knowing for sure that that is made right. So come, Holy Spirit, now work through this song as Derek leads us. And may people just follow me over to that table, have a moment with you, and see their eternity changed. Because on Christmas 2014, they got promoted into a relationship with you. I pray this in Jesus' name.